0: Welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Welcome back, Zahava. Hey, so great to be back. Welcome. We're so happy to have you back. And Mazel
1: Tov on your new baby. How are you feeling? Thank you so much. I'm doing pretty well, thankfully. This baby is a good sleeper so far. i probably just her and her all over that, but um, <laughs> that's that's why I'm functional. So we're very grateful. That is an amazing gift. I'm very happy for you.
0: And we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Somerville, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. How are
2: you feeling? I'm feeling good. I've got a bit of a countdown clock in my head. Five weeks till till a baby. So, you know, chugging along. Awesome. Well, I'm not pregnant. So (laughs) that's all I really have to
0: say here. But um,
1: (laughs) neither am I. uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true, but you were very recently. <laughs> I'm so excited for you, for both of you, and I'm excited that we um, at least have a little bit of time got the band is back together before Mimi takes a little breather to uh, do some other important work. This month, we are talking about the new book, Warm and welcoming: How the Jewish Community Can Become Truly Diverse and Inclusive in the 21st century, which was edited by Warren Hoffman and Miriam Steinberg-Egith. And for our second segment, we're talking about The Club, a new show on Netflix that centers on a Jewish woman in Istanbul in the 1950s. So I'm so excited to talk about both of these things with you all. Um, For our first segment, um, I guess I should just give a disclaimer, which is that we've had Miriam on the show before. Um, I'm very, very close friends with Miriam. So this is not um, a review of the book. This is just kind of us talking through, um, the, the contents of the book and, um, some of the big ideas that are in here and there's uh, a lot to talk about. So let's dig in. Um, I was, I felt like as I was reading this book, I was like, wow, there's just so many ways that a community can mess up being, being welcoming. (laughs) It just like started to make me feel really stressed out about how many ways there are to fail at this. And it gave me a lot of compassion for Jewish professionals who do this work all the time. I know how hard it is, but yeah, overall, I just, I, I walked away from this thinking like, This feels like so much, and yet all of these things don't need to be happening in exactly the same way at exactly the same time. Like The book is is broken up into chapters that are each written by um, different people, and they are about LGBTQ Jews, interfaith families, Jews of color, disability, access, and inclusion, millennials and Gen Z, um, a new model for Jewish institutions, arts and culture programming, Music, social justice, Israel-Palestine, education, minions, dues and fundraising, marketing and communications, and almost everything else. (laughs) And that's just like a lot. But on the other hand, it's like you don't necessarily need to be doing um,
1: all of those things at the same time with the same person. And some shuls won't do all of them at all, right? Some shuls won't be interested in all of them, but I think it's well organized in an a la carte way. For people to say, we want to work on that, or it wouldn't have occurred to me to work on that. Let me take a look at that section.
0: Totally. Speaking of not having it occur to you, I know this book is really not geared towards the Orthodox community. And Zahavan, I'm really curious what your impression was of it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I felt that and then I wondered if I was being too sensitive. <laughs> but I will say, I think that in a way, what I thought of as the front half of the book was less useful than the back half of the book, right? So you just rattled that off, and the the first several chapters are really about um, welcoming and inclusion of particular populations, and the second half had more to do with particular kinds of programming and uh, subject matter that a synagogue might deal with. And I felt like the parts that were about welcoming particular populations were Less applicable to an Orthodox setting in a way that I sometimes felt conflicted about and sometimes felt totally unconflicted about. Like, I think that most Orthodox synagogues are not seeking to become more wel- welcoming to interfaith families, and they don't feel conflicted about that, right? There's not a lot of soul searching about that because it's, first of all, numbers wise, uh, you know, marrying somebody who isn't Jewish is less of a thing in the Orthodox community, but also. That is philosophically something that Orthodox institutions do not want to welcome, whereas other things just felt sort of structurally challenging to me. So I was really struggling, for instance, in the chapter on Jews of color, which I think is really important for Jews of every denomination. I was really struggling with the balance between don't tokenize, don't ask the one, you know, don't ask one Jew of color to shoulder that representation for everybody and then, you know, ask them to fix the problem for you. But also ensure representation, but also your status quo ante is that you have one Jew of color in your membership and part of being an orthodox shul means that your membership can only be drawn by the geographic area that is within walking distance of your shul. And there just may not be other Orthodox Jewish Jews of color within that walking distance. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's real. And I I didn't feel like there were great, frankly, practical suggestions in most of those opening chapters. On the other hand, the back half of the book about different kinds of programming, I was very surprised to find that the arts and culture programming chapter by Marilyn Levitch-Chasset was... I thought fantastic and incredibly helpful, whether or not your focus is arts and culture programming, right? It was generally useful information on how to think about bringing new people into shul leadership meaningfully or you know, communal leadership of different kinds, how to meaningfully listen to them and engage them and think about succession planning in a useful way and how to plan programming that is for some and programming that is for all. And I thought it was so useful and applicable to all kinds of settings. So I think that there are things where I still wanted something that was more actionable in an orthodox context And there were things where I felt like this just isn't trying to talk to me and that's fine And then there were other things where I found some really unexpected nuggets of very helpful insight
2: So how about I have a question because I As I admitted to you guys before before recording I didn't I skimmed a lot of this but didn't get to really dig in in depth and In the chapter on arts and culture programming, would you distinguish between programming and davening and services? Is that something that she does or do you think that's a false distinction?
1: Well, I don't think she's talking about davening at all in that section. So this is she's she's largely talking about culture festivals put on in the JCC setting, uh, you know, dance performances, music programming. Not everything here is exclusively prayer community based. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a recognition that shuls are among multiple Jewish institutions in a wider community that will be participating and putting on that kind of programming. So I, I think that she she herself is not talking about the prayer experience, but I think that the general perspective on how to meaningfully think about widening the circle of contributors to programming and ideas, how to engage them well and think about the future and plan things that appeal to some and all, all of that is applicable to both the prayer setting and the, you know, outside prayer programming setting. I think I thought it. I was the reason I'm harping on this one, I think, is that I was just surprised to find it so relevant. Mm hmm. Given the title, it seemed like it was going to be narrow and then it super wasn't. Right.
0: I was really excited about the Israel-Palestine chapter, which I felt like is a place that I think I've seen more communities starting to pay attention to the fact that like people are being driven away by some of the ways that communities talk about or don't talk about Israel. So it was interesting to read a chapter about a community that has like worked super hard in very intentional ways at like really bringing in people with very different views on Israel and getting them to be in conversation with each other in a, a way that really seems to not be combative. And I just thought that was so refreshing it's funny because I've like been at events where people were like trying to do that but they just seem to have gotten like nowhere near the level of success that this community did and it just made me wish that I could bring some of that to communities that I'm a part of because I usually just walk away from conversations about Israel as as I've said many times on this podcast just like wanting to run and or like gnaw off my own arm if I have to, to avoid the, the, the conversation. So like the fact that they were able to make these conversations not terrible was really impressive to me. And I felt like what was great to me about that chapter was like, I felt like the rabbi who wrote it, she talked about like setting the table for like, these are the kind of conversations that we often have as a Jewish community about Israel. And these are the reasons that I think they don't really go anywhere. And like, what if we tried to have another kind of conversation and really deeply engaging with people who have a bunch of different ideas about Israel. Like she intentionally tried to have the conversation with people who didn't all have the same ideas, knowing that it was going to be hard and trying to get people to like have different kinds of conversations. And then they had like an Israel trip that they did together that it sounded like really was a unique kind of trip and something that, you just don't really hear about communities having. And I was just like, oh, this seems like it could be so valuable and that it really could build community and, you know, in some ways really build a connection to Israel. And we just like aren't doing that in our communities right now.
2: (laughs) I also was really struck by that chapter. And I guess one of the things that made me a little bit sad about it, though, was that she talks about like, Resetting the Table, she brought in basically consultants from a group called Resetting the Table to facilitate a <laughs> workshop. And it sounds like people were curious how this was going to work out, but she had congregational support. And I guess I just feel like this is the ideal and I, I guess I, I'm just feeling I'm I would be curious how somebody from a less resourced community or somebody who's feeling like there's no way the board would support my rabbi in doing this how this might land for them or I don't know it's it's, it's yeah. just tough right.
0: Totally. And I actually think that that's one of the things that I came away from, from this whole book is that like, you know, part of the reason I think I was like, oh, this is kind of overwhelming is because like, I don't think most communities have the resources to do more than one of these things. Well, right. All of these different communities deserve to have a warm and welcoming experience in a Jewish community. But most communities, I think just like don't actually have the resources or knowledge to to do this and it does take time and effort. Like I think one of the things that this book helped me to see in a new way was that like these are not like one-time changes. They're things that you have to do for a while before it actually like makes the difference. And that's just like a, a huge undertaking. And ultimately like I think a lot of what it comes down to is like what does your community like who shows up that needs to be welcomed and then like allowing, you know, leading from that. Um, But it also means that like some people won't show up because they won't have the kind of runway of feeling like this community is for them. So they just won't. And that's the reality of like how communities and Jewish
1: professionals have to operate is like, there's, so much. It's interesting because it it presumes resources, not just in the sense of money, but In the sense of size, right, there are a lot of references in here to bigger (laughs) is not always better and that you can't measure success by how many people are there necessarily. And that, you know, uh, small and close knit experiences can be better for engagement. And all of that is true. And yet a lot of these solutions seem to presume a lot of paid staff. The notion that your shul has a director of membership or a director of engagement or a director of programming, the fact that the, the assumption that you have an educational team. I've been a member of Many, you know, more than one shul where the only staff member was a part time rabbi and everything else was volunteers. And if the standard for volunteering is such a degree of doing the work, then how does anybody have the bandwidth to, to meaningfully volunteer and contribute to their shul? Is something that I really see. But I think one of the major threads through a lot of these essays for me was okay you involved Shul person are coming to this book with the question of how can I get more people to feel welcome in my institution? And surprise, the answer is your institution is not the main question here. It's the people. And like your institution may not be the right institution for those people. You may have to totally rethink your institution. You may have to reformat the notion of Shuls as institutions, you know, get, get to it in a way that, I think is both true and not like a guidebook for somebody who already has a shul that they're trying to improve. There are some essays here that I think very much are help for a shul that you are trying to improve. I don't mean to say there isn't anything in there for you. And Look, I'm on the board of a shul that's been around for over 90 years. It's not going to turn on a dime for anything. And I still found a lot of these thought-provoking and useful. So I don't mean to minimize that. But I do think there's a lot of challenge yourself to think about whether your institution is the thing that is best serving Jewish engagement needs in your community in a way that's a little discomforting.
0: Yeah. Well, I definitely felt like what you were saying about like staff, Uh, I, I almost felt like a lot of these books were ultimately came down to like, it's not staff, it's going to have to be volunteers, it's going to have to come from, I mean, I know this word is overused, but it's going to kind of have to come organically from whoever it is that's coming to your organization or institution, they have to want it, you don't get to make them want it, and it won't happen if there isn't like a consensus within the community that it's necessary. I absolutely think that's true. That's absolutely been my experience in Jewish communities is like, it doesn't really matter how much you say, like, this is an important value. If like people don't make it important value by like investing time and energy in it, then it's just not going to be something that you can do. (laughs) That stuff is finite. (laughs) Yeah. And ultimately, like, I don't think that's bad. Like, every community doesn't need to be for everyone. And like, sometimes I think like when somebody has a not welcoming experience at a community, you know, it's like when you go on a bad first date with someone, it's like, okay, it it may have been an uncomfortable evening, but at the end of it, you learned like, oh, I don't want to spend any more time with this person. (laughs) And like, that's useful information. So I think that like, it's helpful to think about this not as a like everybody needs to do everything, although it would be great if everybody was able to like really warmly welcome everyone and like make their community really open to everyone. But it's also like not every community is right for everyone. And that's OK. And, you know, sometimes when people come into your doors and they don't find what they're looking for, it doesn't mean like you didn't do the right thing. It means like it's not a match. And that's
1: OK. Sometimes in these essays, though, the stakes of those negative encounters are presented as you've just turned someone off from Jewish engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think it really depends what kind of institution you are. And that, I think, is a bigger burden for a place that is catering to people on the less affiliated end of the spectrum to begin with because if you as an institution might be somebody's first institutional entry point with Judaism or first institutional entry point in a while then there is a greater burden on you to make sure that that is not a turnoff whereas if it's like hey this person moved to a new city and is trying one of four orthodox shuls the stakes frankly are lower for that person not having a good experience in your shul. I I did actually, though, want to call out something that I appreciated in, um, the sixth chapter, which is, um, by Rabbi Mike Urim called a new model for Jewish institutions. First of all, I think this essay is peak. Your institution might not be one that can become warm and welcoming unless you do some serious transformation. So it's definitely one of the more challenging ones, but there's a, a notion in it of, uh, thinking about programming in one of two models, the Yom Kippur model or the Seder model. Uh, and there's a great little table in there comparing the two. And the point that he's making is that a lot of shul run and institutional programming is sort of a Yom Kippur model where you need a ticket or a membership or some kind of entree to get in. And that what attracts you is something sort of big, like the full institutional reputation. The type of relationship that you have is institutional. What who's in charge is some a small group of lay leaders or professional clergy, and success is measured by big numbers. Uh, and the strengths of the model are that everyone are together in one place and having a mass shared experience. And also there's a high degree of quality control. So that's all of that are characteristics of the Yom Kippur model. The Seder model, what gets you in is a personal invitation. What attracts you is the warmth of the invitation and the ability to know who will be there and that you'll be comfortable. Your relationship is personal rather than institutional. It's led by a host who is part of the group. So there's sort of a participatory leadership. You measure success when you go to a Seder, not by how many people made it to the Seder. Like, oh, that Seder was great. We attracted 400 people to that Seder is kind of a nonsensical (laughs) sentence. But you measure success by how the Seder felt, uh, how the conversation flowed, the sense of connection you had with others. And the strengths of that model are small, intimate, and customizable experiences, low barriers to entry, and using the power of social networks to engage people in Jewish life. And it's not that there's no place for Yom Kippur model programming, but that we should remember that Judaism actually already has other good models, and that especially uh, large established shuls, often default to the Yom Kippur model of programming and I thought it was a very helpful side-by-side presentation that would make sense to pretty much anyone on the Jewish spectrum. So I thought that was really useful.
0: Yeah, I thought that was good too. I wanted to call out one of these chapters that made me so uncomfortable. The Millennials and Gen Z chapter by Rebecca Barr <laughs> was like, I think I maybe am just allergic to like how Conversations about generations because (laughs) I kind of think that is dumb and like you can say anything about any generation and it doesn't really end up holding that much water. It was basically like (laughs) Gen Z and millennials like want to do stuff themselves and they want to have like their own personal connection to things. One of the sections was called playing the game. And I was just like, I don't know. I really resent (laughs) the implication that like my lifestyle is a game. (laughs) I don't know. There was something very weird to me about it. And it was also very funny to me that it was like using this model of design thinking because like I am a designer. (laughs) So like I talk about design thinking at work all the time. And it was just very weird to have this come up to be the subject and not the person doing, doing the work made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm curious if either of you had a reaction to that chapter.
1: Honestly, I read it and then two days later realized it did not stick. Like, I did not feel like I got anything particularly useful about it. But then looking back at my notes, I saw that I actually did screen grab... A couple of paragraphs from it during the section on design thinking that actually did resonate hard as something that I might need to send some of my compatriots on the school board, which is... The first stage in the process of design thinking is to empathize. Researching your users' needs is crucial to this work as it allows you to set aside your assumptions and gain real insight into your users and what they want. Not taking the time to talk directly to the group you are trying to engage is setting yourself up for failure, disappointing not, only, not just your organization, but also, and more important, your intended user. Once you've actually spoken to your target demographic and heard what some of their concerns are, you can begin to define the problem. Without doing this, you're trying to provide an answer to a question that might not need answering. To be clear, the problem to solve is not the organization's problem, such as, why don't more people come to our events? Rather, it's about solving challenges and issues in the lives of the users themselves. And the notion that, like, shuls are constantly trying to solve their own problem of, why don't more people come to our events, instead of thinking about how they can be responsive to the needs of the people that they want to be there that is a thing that definitely happens, (laughs) I will say. Um, I don't know that like overall, I found this to be a particularly useful insight into how to relate to people in this particular demographic.
2: Usually when you try to define a generation with a few like key words and key programs, you're going to fail. But the idea of first start with figuring out empathy and what do these people actually want? It's sad that that's novel for Jewish organizations, but I think that it really is. Zahaba, I think you're totally right.
0: I guess I think that part of my um, my reaction to this was like, this isn't specific to Gen Z or millennials. Yes. Like, what in my work, I do this and like, I'm mostly most of the people who are going to be using the thing that I'm working on are probably older adults. So they're not Gen Z or millennials, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't be like, what does this person actually want? Like what might this person be worried about in this situation? (laughs) Like that's, I don't know. It just felt like kind of a bizarre paradigm for what my generation is and thinks and that that felt really weird and i was also like i guess this is already just like this is what it's gonna be for the next 40 years is like stories of i mean it was like there was all those stories about millennials killed whatever and now it's just gonna <laughs> be like millennials killed school guys <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, COVID killed I was
2: just thinking that, COVID killed shul.
1: (laughs) And I had nothing to do with that. Your quick reference to older adults actually made me think about one thing that did feel a little funny to me about this book, which is that it was the sense that, hey, older people are getting what they need from these legacy institutions. But in general, membership is going down. You can't count on... Everyone always following the same paradigm and therefore you need to adjust for new generations, new concerns, new attitudes, new political persuasions in a way that other than perhaps tangentially in the disability access section felt like. It was ignoring the ways in which actually inclusion of older adults might be something important to think about purposefully. And actually one little place where I was hoping to see it, because I'm really looking for ideas here and I didn't, was in the marketing and outreach uh, essay, because I feel like I struggle with schools thinking that one extremely long weekly email is sufficient information about programming. And, and then sometimes, you know, frequent repeated emails, but like email is actually not the only way to speak to people. You know, not everything is, ah, uh, yes, and we should do social media. You know, I just, I've, I've been thinking recently sort of struggling with uh, a lack of i good ideas on how to meaningfully market programming to a very broad range of demographics. And I think that that section turned out to be about something else entirely, um, the marketing communications, um, essay, which I should say is by Miriam Brousseau and Lisa Colton was, was very good and about something else, which was about how to be authentic in your communication. What kind of messages are engaging, um, and those things are important, but I actually really just want some mechanical help here. Um, and older adults are part of the reason I'm thinking about that problem.
2: So I will count myself in as somebody who just simply can't read the long shul emails, like, if it's not in the subject line, I anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mimi, officially an older yeah. adult. <laughs> no longer a yeah.
2: When
1: I was in college, I was uh, for a year the president of my campus Orthodox community. And one of the sort of ceremonial baton passing moments is that the new president gets to rename the weekly email Oh. And it's like a major personal branding moment when you decide what. It's I'm for. sure. Yeah, so you know, one of my predecessors had TGIF. Another one had the Weekly Chillant. Uh, the one after me had the Stark Attack. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> what was yours?
1: A very yeah, on was brand uh, in like a nerdy Jewish learning fashion. It was called the Masachet Shabbat. Um, because it's like the Friday email. It goes out (laughs) before Shabbos and it's everything you need to know, like service times and programming for the week. And so, yes. That's amazing. But keep it short, people. Come on. Yeah, keep it short. Thank you.
0: Our Mishals is called the E-Kong, which... I hate. <laughs> <laughs> the email is difficult, but saying it out loud or when in shul announcements somebody says, it's all in the econ. I'm like, <laughs> that is gibberish to someone who is not already getting it. And even to somebody who is getting it, like, don't remind <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> uh, so, anyways, uh, I'm going to have to suggest uh, Masachat Shabbat <laughs> to. <laughs> Too much.
2: And Stark attack.
0: And Stark attack. <laughs> Definitely. The problem is, like, speaking of being like authentic and welcoming to your community, neither of those would actually be fully comprehensible to a lot of people in my community. So it would have to be something else, but I still don't think E-Kong is the best we can do.
1: (laughs) Well, just to sum it up though, I do think that there are some really great nuggets in here. And that also just looking at the table of contents will probably overwhelm you if you are a lay leader or professional or communal volunteer. And that's okay. Take a deep breath and pick one that seems like it's most relevant to you. And there's probably something good in there.
0: Okay. Well, let's move along to our second segment. Mimi, do you want to take it away?
2: Yeah. So there is a new show on Netflix called The Club. Disclaimer, I'm going to get a lot of these names wrong. Okay. I'm really sorry. It's a period drama directed by Sarah Newton say, and Zainab Gunetan. I'm trying here. There is So there's a lot going on in this show. And I will admit, I think the first couple of episodes are pretty hard to follow. But here's a short synopsis. Matilda is a Jewish ex-convict who gets a job working in one of the most prominent nightclubs in Istanbul in 1955. She's trying to reestablish a good relationship with her daughter. And one of the things she struggles with is keeping her daughter, Rochelle, away from the city's troublemaker, a Muslim guy named Ismet. Matilda also tries to stand up against her boss, Orhan, the nightclub manager, Selibe, and even the artist, Selim. He's like the premier artist that the nightclub promotes. The show has been noted for breaking barriers in depicting Jewish characters in Turkey, and I, for one, am really excited to talk about it. So I just want to start off with like a little bit of a softball, which was, what did you guys think of the music in the show?
1: That is so interesting. I like,
0: yeah, I like the music a lot, but I also was like very surprised by the music. Like there's the music that's going on in the background, which I really liked, but also was like, if I didn't know that it was a Turkish show, I don't know that like I would have figured that out from the music. Cause it feels like there's a lot of different kinds of things happening in the background music. And sometimes it feels a little heavy handed, but then there's also the music that they're playing in the nightclub, which I was like, what is going on here? Like they are like, it's new and no one has heard anything like this. And then you're like, is it new? <laughs> I guess it was new and in Istanbul. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel like super, it doesn't, I think, honestly, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't feel that good, but <laughs> but it's not bad. It's just that I'm like, the way that they talk about how incredible it is, I was like, well, I think I'm not quite with you, but I see what you're getting at.
2: Right. I do think that the show was trying to say, but didn't actually have the musical expertise to show that Selim the artist is like really talented in this music moving away from traditional Turkish music to something a little bit more like jazz inspired but then the music ended up being kind of heavy-handed because maybe it was written by like Netflix music execs or something
0: I guess also I don't actually know what like traditional Turkish music that you might have listened to in the early 50s would have sounded like like I don't have a strong frame of reference for that specific thing,
1: so. I think in general, my lack of a frame of reference for certain things, I definitely felt like I was missing a fair bit with this show. And I'll say upfront, by the way, I'm really liking it. I'm four episodes in. I'm going to stick with it. I'm i really enjoying it, but I do think that I'm missing a fair amount of nuance. So, you know, one of the reviews that I saw mentioned that in addition to the Jewish main characters that clearly other people that the show focuses on are also on the fringes of Turkish society, such as this person who has a Greek name and that person who, and I'm just like, went right by me, right? Like I, I can't even identify which one of these are supposed to be obviously Jewish names. Is Matilda a conspicuously Jewish name in Turkey? I had no idea. You know, there's a scene where her daughter Rochelle, which is obviously an incredibly Jewish name, is trying to present herself as Muslim instead and goes by ISIL. And I'm like, well, I, you could have told me that that was also a traditional Jewish Turkish name and I would have believed you because I don't know. So I feel like that's going by me a little bit in the same way that some of the music is going by me. And also periodically the main character will say bonjour or merci instead of responding to someone in Turkish. I feel like this little French affectation of hers probably has some significant social connotations that I just don't know. So I, I feel like I'm constantly missing a ton of subtext. That said... It's like a very thrillery soap. It's a very complicated, lots of intertwined threads of past and present and intrigue and relationships. And all of that stuff is fun. I think the performances are good. Like in general, I think the acting is quite good. And I also just think the visual, like the look of the show is beautiful. Like it's so Rich and saturated in deep jewel-tony colors, and it's very sumptuous. And it feels like the, uh, the setting is a really real place, and the costumes are great. And so it's just really fun to watch. Um, so I'm enjoying it on that score. I'm waiting for it to deliver on the learn about what it was like to be Jewish in 1950s Istanbul part of it. I, because so much of it is about a small number of Jews navigating a largely non-Jewish context. Um, I don't feel like I've totally gotten that yet, but maybe as we move forward in the show, that'll land a little more for me.
2: Yeah, I I finished the show. There's part one is six episodes and part two is four episodes. Um, And I think in part two, we get a lot more into the geopolitical context and the lives of Jews and Greeks living in Turkey at the time. And I think there's this feeling of like the show opens in 1955. And there's this feeling of openness. And as we come into 56, people start. There's just a lot more targeting of anybody who's non-Muslim. I will say, I don't think it does a great job. Like, you're going to want to look things up on Wikipedia. Like, what the hell was happening? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because it, it is a little bit confusing. You know, so much of my knowledge of those years like if we're talking 55 is like okay so this is post-war but I don't didn't know what that meant in Turkey and the show isn't going to hold your hand and walk you through that really Um, what it meant for Jews there's a lot of focus on Cyprus um, which also is like Just another confusing geopolitical situation that I like have some understanding, but not really any understanding, just sort of know the buzzwords. One like other character in some ways, Jewish character in the show is actually Israel. They never show the characters in Israel. Pretty much all of the Jewish characters at some point go through this thought process of, maybe I should just get out and go to Israel. And Israel is like seen as this place where Matilda's ex-convict status will be forgiven. Um, Any sort of, you know, I had a relationship with a non-Jew will be forgiven. It's just seen as this land of opportunity that's not too far, not too expensive, which makes sense from Istanbul. But I kind of, I I liked, I liked that hopeful character being Israel, actually.
0: There was some scene where they're talking about going to Israel and they're like, a plane or a ferry. And I was like, oh, right. Like, you can just go. (laughs) It's not far. And I hadn't really thought about that. And that does feel like it does change the calculus. Like it's not like fly over a huge ocean. It's like me deciding to go to like Virginia from Philadelphia. Like it's doable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wouldn't take that long. Mm -hmm.
1: But it also seems like a place where you can get papers, you know, which it's not, it's not just a matter of proximity. It's also a matter of like, How many places would take a Turkish Jew in 1955? Not not very many.
0: Something that I really like about the show is that it is about like somebody to whom like their Jewish identity is important to them. Like in the first episode there's a moment where Matilda's like, I have to go home because it's Friday night and it's Shabbat and she like is forced to work anyways. But it's like Judaism is important to her. We see her like doing Jewish things, but like she also does other things. (laughs) I'm like, she's like, she she was in prison for murdering someone. Like (laughs) she is just not like who we usually see. She just has like basically nothing in common with like Jewish television characters that I'm familiar with. Both in her like investment in Judaism, like she seems to actually care about it. It's not like a joke to her or a thing that she like doesn't, feel invested in and in just the like she is so much more complex than just like she's a she's a jewish person like she's got a lot going on and i think that that really appeals to me and that's like totally aside from the fact that like it's uh like when she is talking with other jews she's speaking in ladino like there's a whole kind of side to this story which is that like it's about a jewish community that's like overall not Ashkenazi and so there's just it's like a very different kind of community than we're like accustomed to seeing in most cultural depictions of Jews and I just was like fascinated by all of it like it just felt like this is a kind of Jewish story that we never see otherwise and I was like I feel like it's complicated and I don't totally get it but I was really charmed by just, like, having a view into a world that, like, I knew nothing whatsoever about before. And just, like, kind of, I think I really liked that it complicated my understanding of, like, Jewish history. <laughs> and particularly Jewish women. Like, I, I really liked that it was, like, this woman who was, like, trying to be a good mom to this kid that she had to, like not take care of because she was in prison but like also she is a murderer and she like she has this like kind of friendly relationship with this artist that I don't totally understand and like she's very guarded but she also really loves her child and is like not that good at it (laughs) I don't know I just was like there's a lot here and I I appreciate that 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 there's so much depth to the character and that it's, it goes like, it always zags when I think it's going to zig. Like it's, it's not at all predictable.
1: Something that I'm looking forward to seeing developed more is the place that Matilda feels she occupies or can occupy within the Jewish community and what that community means. It's not like this vague and inchoate thing. It seems like something that is almost an institution in and of itself, right? Like that there was a communal leader whom she could go to and she had to give up her baby and like, That person isn't the rabbi. There's a communal structure. That person is the person who would deal with your immigration papers to Israel. That there's uh, a kind of community protectia situation, like where the community might be a place where you go for a job, where, you know, you can find your place within that. And that that's true. And the community has to look out for its own because the community is also targeted in a significant way by the larger society. And there's a significant subplot. Again, Mimi is something that I had to Wikipedia a little bit about this idea of a tax that applies specifically by ethnic group at different rates and what that meant for Matilda's family when she was growing up and could they pay the tax and what happened to people who didn't pay the tax and how that's tied up in her family tragedy. And so all of that is very much about the policy of the Turkish government towards the Jewish community specifically. And that was really interesting. And seeing that community as an institution is really interesting in a way that is wildly different from the kind of Jewish community context we were just talking about in our prior segment.
2: Right. I think there's even a line. um... She she lost all of her immediate family, except for this daughter that she had to be without while she was in prison. And there's a line, some character says, you know, Matilda, you may have lost your family, but you still have a big family, referring to like the Jews of Istanbul are your family and we are the people who will Take care of you, though. So, there's a lot of judgment there, like sh- like you said, Tamar. She is a convicted murderer, so I should say by the way, people, that's not there. a
1: spoiler. Like the murder happens literally in the opening scene of this television show. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of judgment. I'm only in the third episode, but it also really seems like she must have had a relationship with a Muslim guy. There's like judgment around that as well. I think part of what makes it confusing is just that, like, we as Americans slash Canadians are um, not able to pick up on the, like, specific cues of Muslim versus Jewish names or Greek names. And, like, yeah, I mean, I, like, just figured out in the third episode that Ismet is Muslim. So there is I feel like there's things where it's like if you wait like eventually they will tell you but until that point you're just like I don't get it why is this such a big deal Mm -hmm. and like and I think what's also interesting about it is my experience of like television shows is typically that like a show makes it pretty clear to you like is this person a good guy or a bad guy and it's not really doing that in a way that is very clear to me that makes it a little bit more confusing about what the point of view of the show is but I I don't dislike it I just find it means that I'm like working a little harder as a viewer to figure out like what's going on like is this good or bad because I can't tell from some of the things that a show like the grammar of a show sometimes does for you
2: I do think that the show struggles with helping the viewer figure out who are the sympathetic characters. And I will say that struggle continues through the end of the show. Um, you're like, I th- I think I like Ismet, but also he's not, but other people don't like him, but I don't really understand why. <laughs> like, what did he do? Um, right. But i i really enjoyed it and i think for people who are looking for an interesting beautiful i agree with zahava like the colors of the show um the music does also get more interesting it's also it's nice to have a show where there's like a performance within the context of the show and you just get to see like talented dancers wearing (laughs) extravagant costumes. Like I think this is a good show to binge in the wintertime.
1: Mimi, is it over? Is it ending with the second season that's on Netflix now? Or do you think there's anything more coming? I'm not clear on that. You
2: know, I haven't looked that up, but I will say the last episode ends with like a pretty, it feels pretty done. Feels like the story's over, but I'll look it up. You know, Netflix likes to keep things going if they're working. So we'll
1: see. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we got into this. I'm not sure that in my, you know, post maternity leave haze, I would have otherwise gone for something with subtitles, frankly. Um, (laughs) and I'm glad we did, even though I find Turkish to be an unbeautiful language, uh, orally. Um, but I, but I I'm really enjoying it. Even though I did have to watch the first half of the first episode two and a half times.
0: Um, I turned on the uh, British English dubbing because I wanted to be able to like fold laundry while I was watching. <laughs> um, and uh, I recommend that as a strategy if you are struggling with the with the subtitles. Because I. Like, I don't mind reading subtitles. It's just that, like, my life is such that it would be really great if I could, like, cook dinner or full laundry or put things away. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) while I was also watching the show. So, all right. Well, I totally agree. I I really liked what I saw, even though I found it a little hard to pin down um, at times. And I just mostly was so happy to, like, get a mile away from any other, like, Jewish show that I've ever seen. And even though I don't think like it's totally amazing and I love it. I was just so happy to to watch something that was like Jewish and very different from anything, anything else that has been,
2: you know, characterized as Jewish. Canadian. It's not unorthodox. I will tell you that <laughs> you might appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Mimi. What do you have to endorse? So I, man, January has been rough for a lot of us. I don't even have to tell you guys Omicron, lack of childcare, horribly cold weather where I am. Um, and I got this earworm from an Instagram reel. I think it's a, I think it's Bohemian Balabusta, which um, Tamar put me on yes. to She's a from influencer influencer, which I wanna call a from fluencer, but I don't I don't know if that's right yet. Um, but there's a song called Gewaltig, uh, by Lipa Schmelzer And gewaltig means like mighty and terrific and huge. I don't I don't quite it's it's a good thing. Um, and the song just pretty much just repeats it's so much fun I also found another show called which is a Russian word meaning good um, by Benny Friedman and I've just fallen down the rabbit hole of I'm going to say it ridiculous Hasidic pop songs uber produced sound a little bit clubby but also then you like hear like at one point um lipa schmelzer is like chanting like the 13 attributes of god anyway i love it it's really positive and it's really just helped me like hype up my days so a link to gewaldig by lipa schmelzer <laughs> and clara's show by benny friedman you're welcome
0: <laughs> i <laughs> That is the most out of left (laughs) field endorsement we might have ever had. And I love it. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Zahava, (laughs) what have you brought? (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to do one of those things where everybody else already knows that something is amazing and you're basically endorsing sunshine. (laughs) While I was, you know, making my way through some Netflix classics during my maternity leave for the very first time, I watched Funny Girl, the 1968 Barbra Streisand classic musical about comedian, performer, vaudevillian Fanny Bryce, who comes up from the Lower East Side and becomes a Ziegfeld girl and and then her turbulent up and down marriage with Nicky Arnstein and all of these classic things. And I'm going to admit to my shame that my first exposure to the song Don't Rain On My Parade was actually on Glee. I'm sorry, but it's fabulous. And watching Barbara Streisand do it on a boat <laughs> is the best thing ever. And just in general, it is f- fantastic to watch Barbara Streisand in her prime doing like one of her marquee roles. And it's just such a joy to watch Funny Girl. So if you are one of the six and a half people who have not seen it yet, you really should. It's on Netflix. The other thing I want to endorse, I'm going to make a food recommendation that isn't even a recipe. When I was growing up, my mom always made chicken soup for Friday night as the appetizer to start the meal. Always chicken soup. Honestly, my dad would not stand for any alternatives. You try to serve him another soup. It's just like not a good situation. (laughs) But as an adult, I've always kind of resisted it because it feels like a really expensive appetizer. To make a good chicken soup, you need a fair amount of chicken. And I always felt like, that's just such an expensive, you know, way to start a meal. So I have, uh, recently been making more chicken soup for Friday night and then repurposing for two entire other weeknight meals. So, uh, after Shabbos, you know, One of the first leftover dinners, uh, you know, Sunday night, I'll use the chicken soup to make a very inauthentic, but really delicious miso soup. Uh, for dinner the next night where I'll cube up tofu. I've been putting in, you know, you put in like scallions and bok choy and carrots and, um, and like miso paste in with your chicken broth and some rice noodles. Um, and I'll just by the way, shout out to Geffen brand rice noodles, which are actually excellent and very useful. Geffen brown rice noodles. So very inauthentic miso soup, but a great use of the broth. And then harvesting the, uh, the chicken from the chicken soup, you know, it's, you don't usually just want to eat the chicken from chicken soup because the flavor has been a little bit cooked out of it. And uh, that's why I was always reluctant. But what I've started doing is chop up the chicken fine, put in like a cup of broth in a saute pan with it to sort of rehydrate it and mix in a bunch of spices to make chicken for fa- for shredded chicken fajitas. So just mixing in some chili powder, some paprika, some onion, yeah. garlic, mm. and like you, you put together uh heavily spice up your soup chicken with a little bit of the broth to get that moisture back. And then it's great for fajitas. So I have started making more Friday night chicken soup, knowing that I can really get all the mileage out of the chicken that I put in. Uh, So classic chicken soup on Friday night, miso soup on Sunday night, and then chicken fajitas on Monday. So that's my recommendation. Make the most of your chicken soup.
2: Balabusta in the house. I love it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I also have
0: not seen Funny Girl, so... That is a very useful for me, um, endorsement. I will totally, totally do that. So a couple of months ago, we talked about, uh, Jewish romance novels. What I want to endorse is a romance novel called the band sinister by KJ Charles. It's not so KJ Charles writes as far as I know, um, gay romance novels. And this is one of those, um, But similar, somewhat similar to um, the club, there is a whole, like, there's a side plot in this romance novel where there is a woman who breaks her leg and she gets brought to this place where she would not normally otherwise go. And this doctor is taking care of her. And he turns out to be a Portuguese Jew. And this all takes place, like, I don't know, 150 years ago. This is, like, not the central romance of the book, but they end up falling in love. And um, he first has to be like, I'm not going to be your doctor anymore because that's unethical. And then he's like, I don't know if you want to marry me because I'm Jewish and you would have to become Jewish. And, she, and she's like, sure, <laughs> I would do that. Is it hard? And he's like, yeah, it's going to actually be kind of rough. And there's a lot that you're going to have to do. And she's like, it's cool. <laughs> and I just, like, was so surprised that it was, that any part of it was there. That there was, like, a Jewish character, and that they were a love interest, and they were Portuguese, and... They were, like, it just, there was, like, a a lot about it that, like, surprised me in a good way. And, like, the book Separately is, like, a really fun romance. It's a gay romance, and there is, like, pretty serious sex. So if that's, like, not your thing, this book is not for you. And it's also about, like, I guess we would now classify it as polyamory, although that's not what they call it in the book, where it's, like, a bunch of guys who are in like in relationships with each other but not exclusively. It's great. I loved it and I was like and there's a Jewish angle to this and um it's an excellent audiobook with a great um, British reader who does excellent voices. Um so Mimi, I know this is it's my theme, yeah, there you so, go. Um I totally recommend The band Sinister by KJ Charles.
2: Tamara, it sounds both warm and welcoming. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, the conceit of the book is that when this girl ends up in this place, um, it's not warm and welcoming. But then, uh, um, as you might expect from a romance novel, it ends up being quite warm (laughs) and quite welcoming. (laughs) Um, So, so yes, warm and welcoming, bringing it all together. What a great show. It was so great to uh get you all back together and have have this conversation with you. Um
1: so fantastic to be back with you guys, but thank you to both of you and to our guests for keeping the home fires burning while I was taking some time away. Um we totally missed you mm-hmm. and um Mimi, I know
0: you're going to be off with a new little person soon and we're gonna hit you too
2: i can't wait to hear all of the, the great things that you guys record and just listen to some hasidic pop and think of me okay? guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> i will always think of you when i when listen you do to that? Hasidic pop. Now, <laughs> i don't know how often that's gonna be to be totally honest but <laughs> Um, all right. Thank you all for listening. Um, and thanks to Daniel for editing our show. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts um, or let us know what you'd like us to talk about um, on a future episode. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Just make sure to choose Talking in Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a really nice way to make sure that we can keep bringing you this podcast um, every month. And we are so, so glad to be with you all. See you. Thank you so much, Zahava. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. Thanks, Tamar. We'll see you next month.